0: another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube. Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast version from FunkinStuff.net, iTunes, and other leading providers. I'm Scott Dr. GX Goldfein, your host, musicologist, and author of Everything is on the Wine, The First Guy to Funk. Get your copy to Amazon if you don't have it yet. Whether you're watching or listening, I thank you so much for your continued support and interest. You've tuned in for a great show. My guest today is a guitarist, David Mackey, best known for his work with T-Connection in the uh-huh. 1970s and 1980s. Funk R&B disco band who had eight albums. They had five top 40 U.S. R&B hits And uh, a great mix of funk, R&B, disco on the um, TK label. So, uh, David, how are you? So good to have you today.
1: Hey, I'm great. I'm great. I know we've been trying to do this for a while, and it's uh, super to finally be able to connect with you.
0: Yeah. So, and, of course, you're in the uh, envious location of uh, the Bahamas, right?
1: Yes, I am very hot. Um, Well, you're in a hot place, too. That's, but um, yeah. it's really, really hot, hot here, and um, just happened to just get home, and I'm now down in our practice dungeon because I have a local band that, uh, you know, I've actually introduced quite a quite a number of Bahamians who've been in and out of the bands into music of our era, because I'm still into what you know the styles of music that existed uh, back back in the 70s and the 80s, and and even some before that. You know, the Beatles. I like the Beatles. I like uh, the Isley Brothers, and, you know, it's just a wide mix of uh, of music.
0: Well, I think, I mean, as far as I know, you're the only band from there to really do, you know, funk in a way that sounded like it was, um, you know, could have come from the U.S. I mean, it was authentic funk. It wasn't, um, you had some island flavor in some of the stuff you did, uh-huh. but you could also bring the real funk, too, and I don't know any other band from that that uh, island that area that could
1: do that well you know we in the Bahamas um, one of the things that's, that says was really different from how it is in, in, the, in the United States uh, which I spent a lot of time in the United States actually um, I spent a lot of years growing up in the Chicago area playing blues and blues clubs and, and, and stuff like that here news mus- the music was was always integrated it wasn't segregated so um, you know, we were into pop, rock, funk, classical, jazz. Um, as a matter of fact, um, before I joined the band, they, uh, the band did a cover version of Daniel, and uh, everybody thought that it was, was our song. And, um, you know, a lot of the music that, that we did um, was really an eye-opener for for, uh, for Bahamians, and, and, and our music is, is influenced by it. Like, if you listen to On Fire and... And, and Prisoner of My Mind and a lot of those type of tunes, you'll you hear classical elements because uh, our band leader, Theophilus Coakley, is classically trained, jazz trained, and uh, he's liter- literally a music genius. I'd never actually encountered anyone that I've spent time with like that that is a musician on that level. So he was able to actually bring all of us up, musically, to a higher level and a lot of my playing as a, as a guitarist is influenced by what I got from him. So a lot of what I do will be some of the kind of movements that a keyboard player would be doing.
0: So interesting to hear that it was sort of a melting pot there in terms of the yeah. music, which is great. Um, but uh, tell me what it was like growing, growing up there and how and when did you get into
1: music? Well, my story is unique. From the rest of the guys, because I lived in the Bahamas when I was in my younger years, and uh, because my my parents, um, my dad moved to the States, and so with me, I actually grew up more in the Chicago area, and so my influence, musical influence, came from uh, were more like rock. Oriented, and I spent a lot of time. I played in blues clubs in on the south side of Chicago, in the roughneck areas there, in the wee hours of the morning. Played with some of the old guys, like I played with uh, Muddy Waters Jr. Um, mm-hmm. Played with, um, sat in with some guys, uh, old blues guys like Lefty Diz, and we played with a band that was uh, Sun Seals. And uh, these guys were all, you know, deep blues. You know, Chicago is the blues capital of the world. And um, so a lot of my musical influence comes from that and I listen to a lot of um, Hendrix, um, you know, I listened to the Isley Brothers, and when I, when I joined the band, because the band existed, I'm not one of the original members, I joined, I joined actually on the second album. And uh, the band existed before in Nassau. And um, I came in on the Do What You Want to Do album, so I was in on the tour. And uh, <clears throat> for me, um, I met I met because Theo, Theophilus Coakley and Kirkwood Coakley um, are my family, they're cousins. And so mm-hmm. they had this huge song, Do What You Wanna Do, which was a massive hit that stayed, stayed uh, 10 weeks at number one on the dance charts. And um, I was in university at the time. His um, sisters lived in Chicago as well too. And uh, when they came to do a concert with this huge record Um, Their sisters brought them over and I was in university at the time, but obsessed with music I was going to do electronic engineering uh, But music was just that drug those 12 notes just um, were hypnotic for me and still are because if I could I'd drop everything I'm doing now and get right back into music because that's a passion. It's a part of me and so they brought them over to the house where I lived were actually in the suburb of Chicago Evanston and and I played them some demos that I, that I did, and uh, they were quite impressed with my playing. And uh, when I went to go and see them in concert um, in, in Chicago, which was a big sold-out concert, um, I went backstage and I said to them, you know, if you, if you ever think about expanding, you know, give me a call. And I never thought anything would ever happen from it. And uh, two weeks later, they called me and said, Dave, you ready? And I went, what, what, what? Hmm. And um, they, they sent my, my tickets, a ticket for me to head down to Criteria, the legendary Criteria Studios, uh, which has recorded the likes of um, Hendrix has been in there, James Brown, uh, The Eagles. A lot of the classic hits of the 70s were recorded in this legendary recording studio um, owned by a guy by the name of Mac Emmerman. Um, the Bee Gees did all of their stuff there, except the, the later stuff, they, they built their own studio, Middle Ear. Um, but when I came, when I went there, the Bee Gees were in there every day. Um, they were in a studio upstairs, because their criteria, they're like five studios. And um, they were, you know, they used to go upstairs to the studio, which was pretty much like theirs, inside this, this complex. We used to see them every day. Um, and Julio Iglesias was there too, at the time. And Olivia Newton John passed through, and and um, the the one who died um, was it, I think it was Barry or Andy Gibb passed through there, um, and yeah. so yeah, and um, actually the the their producer by the name of Albie Gluten, um at that time, you know the 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 keyboards aren't like how they are now, where all of the stuff is they're all samples and they're all pre-done for you uh, when you were using. <coughs> synthesizer, and I have something something that's kind of like from that era now, if you see this here, which has the name Moog on it, which I'm sure you know that name, <laughs> Moog. Um, it all had to be programmed, so these devices came, and there was no push a button, and the sound is there. Uh, no, you push a button, and you had to go through these different oscillators and filters and, and everything to, to generate the sound. And um, you know the devices have to warm up because they drift out of tune. Um, and so Albie came in and um, he did some of the programming for us. Actually, he did the programming, the low growl synth that's in um, Do What You Want to Do. So if you listen to that, you hear the low synth in there. Um, he was involved with that.
0: Wow! So Chicago, Chicago what a great <laughs> soaking up the authentic Chicago blues—you can't beat that. I've been there a few times myself, and it was a thrill to get to go to some of those, you know, real gritty uh, blues clubs and hear those guys. Yeah. Um, so, Dave, when did you first pick up the guitar, though, and how did you learn how to play?
1: Uh, I actually started the guitar late. I, I initially. Uh, it's something that I always wanted to do, but you know it's not an easy instrument to to play. And um, I hooked up with a friend of mine, um, who was a really good good buddy of mine um, by the name of Jim Duplo. He's he's right now he's a podiatrist. And um, you know I always wanted to be in a band, and it's like, well, what's going to be the easiest way in? And it's like, okay, well, if you learn the bass, you can you know you can get in because it's it's a whole lot simpler, you know, to play the, the basic bass. And so I did that, and I got some tips and tricks from, from him. And um, I hung out at music stores um, in, on the north side of Chicago and in Evanston, and to hear, you know, as soon as I heard somebody doing stuff that I didn't know, you know, i dash over and asked him to show it to me. And, um, you know, then when I went to university, when I should have been really into my work, um, I was still the music. And I connected up with a friend of mine who was an incredible harmonica player and also played guitar. And he showed me some simple sort of tricks that that just revolutionized my playing. So uh, when I came from break um, after being at university um, and I was jamming with my friends, they were like, wow, it was on a whole other other level from even the guy who, who you know, who, I, who got me into it. Um, so, you know, it was an obsession. Um, it, as far as uh, guitar itself, um, I didn't really take much lessons. Um, I did spend some time with some guys, but, but my thing was, you know, the, the basics and just playing the, the strings and the things that, that they would show you as somebody just coming up, you know, playing whether it's Mary Had a Little Lamb or what have you, it just, it just didn't work for me. I needed to go right straight in and right at it and um, through being affiliated with a lot of people um i was able to um get and to get into it and, and, and my my thing was i wanted to sound really strong you know i wanted a, a very powerful sound and um so um you know and that really comes in how you do your note bends and you know how, how you how you feel the guitar and so i spent a lot of time um, you know, I would just grab a guitar and I would just bend the hell out of it, bend the notes out of it, and work to get the strong, you know, the strong sound. And, you know, I was able to to spend time around a lot of a lot of guys who played a variety of different styles. Um, there was a friend of mine who was a southern rocker, and he showed me southern stuff. And um, you know, they did a lot of listening. And when I joined with with uh, T Connection, it was my sound and, and everything and my approach. That really enticed them to to bring me in because I was the youngest guy I was like 19 years old and the other guys were older and it's like you know you're gonna bring this kid in how's it gonna work you know but but I came in there really obsessed with music so I was just like that um, you know it
0: sounds like you're a little quicker study with the music than you were with college
1: yeah but the thing about it is when I finally settled down and said I'm gonna get serious with this with you know with my studies um, that's when the opportunity came because I pretty much was like this is not going to work. I'm not going to be able to do this. And um, so I had hunkered down and I was ready to do my, my schoolwork. And then that's when the opportunity came, which seems to be how it is in life all the time. Mm-hmm. There's something you're really working hard at and then you finally say, well, well it's not going to happen. And you go to something else and you're like, ready, I'm going to make this happen. Then what you wanted before comes in and it's like, okay. Are you're going to take it or are you going to keep going on that path? And I took it, and it was you know, it was a, a thoroughly exciting ride for me, because um, you know I was a guy who I hadn't played in front of any more than like 50 people, and you know when I joined the band, we were, we were recording and also touring, you, so you'd record and you'd go, a gig comes up, so we, we went on tour. So the first concert tour that I went on was with the Isley Brothers. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, here, you know, just a few weeks earlier, I was listening to them on the radio and Ernie Isley and his guitar playing and all of that. And, and those guys were just amazing. I loved the music. And uh, there I was on stage. Ah, huh. So from 50 people to 25,000 people in Savannah, Georgia. And it was like, I was like stoned, not, not on drugs. The high on the music was just unbelievable because, you know, back at that time, which you can identify with, you know, there was no pocket devices. There was not even videotapes. So when a concert came in town, it was massive. It was huge, you know, because other than that, people went to the movies and, you know, there weren't these other, you know, other distractions. Um, so, So our concerts were just an incredible experience and um, you know we toured throughout the states we were supposed to go to europe because europe actually was our largest market and uh when we left tk records um and we we went to capital which is where we did the majority of our our recordings our manager we were just about to go on, on a european tour and our new manager who happened also he was also the manager for bob marley and jimmy cliff and he also used to manage uh marvin gaye a guy by the name of Don Taylor. And um, mm-hmm. he uncovered uh, the management team that we had before were about to rip us off. And um, so we, we never ended up in Europe, like I say, which because we've been on top of the pops, We've been on full Train. You know, we've been on American Bandstand. Um, we did TV specials with Donna Summer, the BGS, Village People, and all those guys from the disco, disco era. So, you know, we had, um, it was quite the ride. It was
0: quite an amazing ride. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So the first album that you had mentioned with the hit before you came was uh, Magic in 1977, right? Yeah. And that had the, the big first hit, uh, Do What You Want to Do. Uh, the biggest is, song
1: like that. yeah.
0: Yeah. So that song had a touch of funk, but I would say it was a little more dance club type of thing than yeah. straight out funk. Um, well,
1: well, part of our, our, part of our um, constant battle was that you know it was the disco era but we really were funk people and um so there was always a battle with our producer who was a disco guy and um you know we wanted to do like if you were to hear the original version of do what you want to do it doesn't sound like like this one uh which it probably would not have would not have hit either like that because our producer was just he was just in you know in the circuit you know he did um he also did uh peter brown remember him
0: yeah
1: uh do you want to get funky with me and a, and a couple other hits a guy by the name cory wade um with, with henry stone and you know his thing was disco and then that that's what was making the money for us but our heart was in funk i <laughs> i
0: I've, I've, I've felt that going on in the records and it's interesting to hear you say that because i felt like you know, they were constantly kind of working together, a little against each other, and you were in both places at the
1: same time. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you know, that song. You'll also hear all of the classical influence from 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 uh, Theo, the band leader, in there, and string break and, and and all of that orchestration.
0: So, was the uh, band living in America at at, at some point? I know. Um, did Did yep. they ever come? Come to Miami or? what? Oh
1: yeah, Miami. Miami. The of home, but we, we we lived in the Bahamas. Was was our you know base where we lived. Um, but we would only spend at that time. We would spend about maybe the most three to four months. The rest of the time, you know, recording was like three to four months, and then there was the, the touring and promotional gigs. So we, you know, Criteria is in 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 Miami. So you know, we we would be there. We 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 did. Um, I think three albums at Criteria and we did another one at Studio Center which is right around the corner from there um, back at that time. So it was a central hub of of recording. And uh, we did our At Midnight album at Studio Center. And um, then we did um, other albums in New York, The Power Station, uh, which, which is now also renamed. That's another legendary studio. At that time, we bumped into Aerosmith, mm-hmm. who were recording across the hall from us, and uh, also Diana Ross was recording upstairs, and uh, Blondie was there. So I mean, these were like you know the the places where all of the recordings happened, you know, um, because back then you know we were you know we were playing for most of it we were playing real drums, and. um you know, it was the sound of bands existed, like in, you know, in R and D now, like what, what band is there? Can you name a band? You know, it's, it's a singer and you know, if he's got some backup that's it. Yeah. Oh, you know? yeah.
0: Unfortunately, um, yeah. from my perspective, but, um, so were you, you were with the band though, when they were still at TK to some extent, did you guys well, ever?
1: Well, remember, uh, go, no, you... I came in, I came in on the second album. The first album I came in in '77 when "Do What You Want to Do" was out, and the second album, I was on from, from everything from then on.
0: Okay, so did you guys uh, tour with Casey and the Sunshine Band? I mean, that was the other big act. We we it, it never happened, you know.
1: Um, we were on the same label. We were all on 2K. Uh, I remember, um, you know, there were different functions that we would we would bump into him at. There was like a big record party in uh, in New York. And then there was Casey's album release party that happened in in Miami, uh, where they released it platinum, and we were we were there with him with that. And Casey's been here in concert, you know, I've seen him and talked to him and stuff. But um, we never played, never performed on the same stage. Hmm. Worked been kind of a natural actually because we were pretty close together, yeah. you know, styles weren't weren't too too far apart. But. Uh, no, it didn't
0: happen. So, so, Dave, I'm wondering, you know, when you came into the band, you're this young guy and you're playing guitar, did you kind of step on the toes of anyone else who had been playing guitar or wanted to play guitar in the band?
1: Well, what, what happened was <clears throat> there was a guitar player in there, and um, he ended up leaving when we went to Capitol because we had um, <clears throat> Berkeley Van Bird, who is deceased now. He died um, a couple of years back of cancer, um, and we had uh, Monty Brown, uh, who was the other guitar player. And when we left to go to Capitol, they left the band at that time. And um, they had some other stuff that, that they were working on. And we went on to Capitol myself, uh, Theo, Kirkwood, and uh, Monks, our percussion player, who actually went on to join Bahaman. You know, who let the dogs out? Yeah. Join um, them. And so he he did he did well for himself because he was there for the for that hit, and
0: um, yeah. Uh, you make a career off that, a hit like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All
0: right, so we're talking about some of the songs, and I just want to go through a list of some of the ones that were um, hit singles and better known uh, for T Connection. and um, On Fire was another one um, that we talked album about. Album? Let Yourself Go. Yeah, um, at midnight.
1: Yeah, that was on at Studio Center.
0: That um, that yeah, that one actually definitely you could really hear the uh, funk and disco influences in that one. I think.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Saturday night, and uh, a little more. That's the more extent
1: love? of this. What's
0: that?
1: A little more love. A little more love. Yeah. Right, yeah.
0: Yeah. So you guys had eight records. So you did uh, three, you said at TK? Uh,
1: at Criteria, at Criteria Recording Studios, we did uh, three there from what I remember. But the label was? Was TK. Yeah. Well, so... the main label was TK, but they put it out on a label called Dash, which was oh. a subsidiary of, of TK.
0: Okay. Um, So the T-Connection album, that was the one that came out in 1978, and that was the one that really hooked me because I was a funk guy. And uh, when I heard that, uh, Funk Connection or Funk Connection, and, uh, well, well, great ballad too. But um, you had the hits on Saturday Night night at Midnight, and then uh, the Funk Connection song was just awesome. So tell me about the making of that record, Dave.
1: Well, we trying to recall now, you know, we worked with the guitar part, and then uh, Theo and uh, Monty, who's the other guitar player, um, they, you know, they they did the lyrics together, and he's the one who actually did the sort of rap thing in there, you know, it was influenced by P-Funk, you, you can hear that, uh, P-Funk, and um, some of the stuff that uh, Ray Parker did, like with Rufus, and that's, the guitar was, was influenced by what Rufus did, like, uh, You Got the Love, you remember that? Yeah, that's a great one. You'll we're using the same type of uh, type of technique on it. And actually, the the uh, engineer who who worked on that project, he and I keep in contact through Facebook. A guy by the name of Gary Vandy. He's worked on quite a number of of projects. The the assistant producer that that worked with with us, the guy by the name of Alex Sadkin, he went on to produce quite a number of hits with Foreigner. Uh, he also went on with Duran Duran. He was, he was our assistant producer, and he was one of the um, co... He actually ran, used to run Compass Point Studios in Nassau, which we, we never ended up recording in. You know, Chris Blackwell, um, he wanted us to record in there, but it, it, for whatever reason, it never happened. I think it didn't happen because we used to like to go away. <laughs> it wasn't a big deal for us to be sitting in Nassau. It would be just like being home. And so while it's a big deal for somebody living in the States or Canada to come to the Bahamas and say, like, wow, be in Nassau and hang out, for us it's just like it was no big deal. It had no spark to it.
0: Is that where Sly and Ravi was doing a lot of their stuff?
1: Yes, yes, yeah. a lot of it. Actually, like, the biggest rock album in history um, has, was recorded there, and that's the one with ACDC with Back in back Black and all of that. That was recorded there. A whole string of hits were recorded at, at Compass Point. And of course, Bob Marley, who was uh, Chris Blackwell's artist on Island Records, uh, was on that label.
0: Wow. Well, this uh, T Connection album, I think, I sense it took you guys to a kind of a new level of success in, and exposure with uh, radio play. And I think as being sort of more of an album artist, do you, do you kind of agree with that? Yeah.
1: yeah, we were more of an album artist because um, you know we would bend to make our music more commercial. But we were more because you know you had a band of like musicians, um, and I say that because um, a lot of the bands bring in studio musicians to play the part, uh, to play the parts, and then the guys would learn it. Um, to give as an example, when we when we signed with Capitol. Um, our first session at uh, the, 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 uh, the studio there, the power, the power station. Um, when we got into the studio, we saw all these musicians there. So a guitar player, keyboard player, percussionist, drummer. Um, I mean, we did use a drummer, because uh, we did, actually we had the drummer from Luther Vandross. who used to tour with him, um, a guy by the name of Yogi Horton, he ended up committing suicide. Not because of us, but that's what happened. Um, so as we were going to go and do our, do our stuff, these studio musicians were sitting there, and we were, like, confused. And so as we struck up our first couple of notes, the guys started packing up their stuff and say, you don't need us because they're used to bands that come in there, but they can't really play and, or can't play on a studio level because the demands of a studio – are much greater than when you're playing live, you know, the, when you're dealing with the producers and stuff. Your, your timing has to be precise, and your instrument has to be tuned properly, and you have to be able to improvise on the spot and come up with, you know, with different riffs and different ideas, um, you know, as they call for them. So. Yeah,
0: well now today, more than ever, the reality that you're speaking there. It's gone. Yeah. You know on this album, I thought too that you guys really showed that you could do a nice ballad. Love Supreme is is real nice In fact um, Kind of a little bit of an earth wind and fire vibe really
1: well earth wind and fire were they, they were our idols and um, You know, so yeah, there is the earth wind and fire uh, Influence and um, you know, you can certainly hear it uh, in that song and as we did more other albums it, it, it really came through you know that it's you know the earth, Wind and flyer fire, fire influence as a matter of fact excuse me on our I, i'm not sure if it's the second album of capital i think it was the second album with capital uh which was produced by a guy by the name of bobby Col- columbi uh he's a drummer from blood sweat and tears He produced wow. the album and um when we went to la to do our our recordings at, we recorded at the capitol studios there on hollywood and vine uh downstairs they've got a couple studio rooms and we recorded in there and um so philip bailey wanted to connect with uh with theo to write some stuff for his you know he was doing his easy lover and all that stuff with phil collins and he wanted to connect with t to do some writing together and um so and i was the guy i used to drive and drive everybody around, and I used to drop tea over to Philip Bailey's house, like daily, uh, to go and work on stuff. And Phil, he actually sang on uh, one of our songs. He sang on um, uh, one of the songs on the Game of Life album. Yeah. So we had Philip Bailey, and our producer knew a lot of a lot of guys, and he also connected us with. We went. George Duke played on some of our our stuff. We went to his house. He had a studio there. And, um, you know, you take the two-inch tape, which would be used to use in those days. And um, he, um, did his keyboard parts and stuff in there. And then we had um, a guy by the name of, I think his name is Greg Dix, who was a, an arranger and also a producer. And he, he did the, um, the work with, um, remember, I Will Survive, hmm. that song. Uh, he did that and he worked on a lot of other stuff. And so with our rhythm arrangements on that album, he was very involved with that. And so a lot of it wasn't really true to how we play and how we would have done it. Uh, because you know, the producer, the producer, we didn't have the latitude. And so although it was funk oriented, it wasn't it didn't come across how we would have done it. It's a lot of this, a lot of the music was changed around.
0: So talk to me, Dave, about how you guys worked in the studio um, with the Coakley brothers and, you know, how that process kind of was orchestrated.
1: Well, we would end up, in the, and, you know, in the early days it was all real drums and the later recordings, you know, was drum machines and, 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 um, and some, some live drums in it. Um, we would pretty much have the studio, it would be like 12 hour days. And, uh, and, and prior to going into the studio, we would practice the material uh, in the Bahamas. All of the material that we did, we always ended up practicing it here in, in, in Freeport before we went into the studio. Um, <clears throat> and depending on, you know, if we had a producer, um, whatever parts we might have worked out and we said, well, we were going to do this part, the producer would end up changing a lot of stuff. I know, like some of the solos um, that that ended up like on the record, I had solos that I had worked out. He says, "No, no, no," they would say, "No, no, I want something free." <clears throat> so a lot of those solos they just they just happen. Um, and um, as far as T, always liked to do the vocals in the wee hours of the morning, so his his singing would happen then because you know the voice gets higher pitch and and. Um, You know, you could hit the higher notes uh, better than in the morning. You know, you got the frog in your throat. So for him, it was, um, you know, we, like, 2 a.m. in the morning, we'd be, like, doing vocals. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some of the songs, um, I know, like, on the latter album, which which the last album we did, which was pretty much pure funk, um, Take It to the Limit, you know, we'd spend, like, a couple weeks on one song. Working and tweaking and changing, and you know, you send it to Capitol, and the producer says, "Give me more of this, add that, you know, get me some girls in this, you know," and then we would end up doing that. Um, and they say, "I can't feel the backbeat. Give me some more, you know, some more lean into it." Um, and you know, that that pretty much would kind of determine the out the outcome. Now, in in the in the disco era, uh, what would happen is Corey Wade would take our our music. To all of these clubs um you know clubs where you know that are packed with people and you know when they're doing the mixing um he would have them pop in our song you know that's still being recorded but nobody would know that it's us or what's happening and so he would put it in and then if he's, he'll see the reaction and if a certain part he sees that there's kind of a lull where they're not really into it he said well we got to change that or if he sees, well, they're really into this break, and when a certain part comes in, we're going to extend that. Um, so he, he really tested it to make sure that you know, the reaction was there so that when it, when it was released, it would get the reaction that, that um, he was looking for.
0: Did, did you guys rehearse a lot you know, outside the studio? And what was your you know, stage performance act like?
1: Um, we, yeah, we did a lot of rehearsal. Um, you know, he's a perfectionist, and you know, late we've done since 20, 2003 um, in the Bahamas. The band still has a big audience, and um, we've we've been doing reunion concerts. And um, with within those reunion concerts, there there have been like different arrangements that that feel uh, would work out. <clears throat> that we'd have to you know we'd have to learn and um the, the unfortunate thing with those instances though is we don't get much time to practice so in some of them we we might have had like the last concert we did i think we got maybe 2 hours or, or so you know we would he would send however he would change the arrangements because sometimes he would um he would end up you know the songs wouldn't be the full full length and so we'd end up with a medley you know, so we may only do with do what you want to do, we may do like only two verses, and then we'll go into something else and then maybe we'll return to it. Um, so he would work out these arrangements and send it to us to work our parts and, and get ourselves familiar with it. And um, and then we would, you know, we would go, because we're all, you know, we're all professional musicians. I'm the only one who doesn't get to play as much as everybody else, but. I get to play more now because i've um I have a band, so once a week down in our dungeon here uh we 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 practice on a wednesday night and um so if we have um a big gig where we're doing a lot of new stuff, we'll practice in a couple more days we it's seven of us um so we've got one guitar um, keyboards, and we have one of the singers that we've just brought in. Uh, she also plays a bit of keyboard, so she plays some second keyboard, and we've got our drums. And what our, what we do with the drums, uh, in order to match up, our drummer plays an electronic kit. Not sequence, but he plays an electronic kit. So when we come on after the DJ, because you know the DJs, these guys have these recordings with with all these subsonics and stuff in it, low end, you know, gone to bed, as we could say in the Bahamas. Um, so we're able to come on and match up with that because we have some of those sounds uh, inside the electronic drum kit. And which is critical because otherwise when the band comes on, everybody comes off because it just, it sounds empty. Mm. So that's that's been um, an incredible um, enhancement for us. And then on top of that, I use a, a digital mis- mixing system. Uh, because it's hard to get engineers here to, to mix live and get us the sound that we want. So I use uh, one of those Behringer X Air series digital mixers with my laptop, and then I can go off with my phone and balance the band. And, uh, you know, so as we travel around, I pretty much have the basics already set. So I just carry my mixer, like we did a, a concert in um, on Abaco Island here. On the settlement of Hope Town, which is an incredible place uh, with a lot of uh, upscale houses, and it's just it's just paradise on earth. Um, and so we did this concert there, and you know they had the. the I told them what we needed uh, for this fundraiser for the lighthouse, which is the only lighthouse of its kind right now in existence. Actually, still using the kerosene lantern. Um, so we did a fundraiser there, and they had the speakers and everything. And I just went in with my board, which I already had configured how I needed to do. And I just had to do some tweaks with it, and uh, we were good to go. So you know, gone are the days when you have to use the old-fashioned mixer with the with the volumes and stuff, and you know, and you have to do everything. Every setup is a totally new, different deal. So now the digital age, the marrying of the digital age. And that's actually playing real instruments because in the Bahamas, most of the bands here, you know, you have people pretty much like karaoke. um, And, um, you know, they have self-sequence and a keyboard and they might play along with it. And for me, I spent a lot of years in the studio as an engineer. And that's one of the offshoots that I ended up as when the band, when we disbanded. Um, actually the last album that we did I engineered it it was recorded in the studio here um, not too far from where where I am now and that was still in the days of two-inch tape very expensive equipment you know like gone are the days of spending 150 grand and 200 grand where you have to spend that money to get a good album you know you take 10% of that and buy the gear and do it at home and that's why the big studios like the compass points and all those guys they're struggling because people aren't going in there. They don't have to. You know, it's it's a whole different day. And, you know, along with that comes the, the, the difficulty in sell, selling selling music. You know? So because everything is, like, free now. You know, there are files and record labels are big dinosaurs and people can get out there on their own. I mean, that's a good thing where you, you don't have to have the big labels behind you. You can actually do like what Justin Bieber and those guys do and, you become in, in demand, but you know the other the other part of it is you know it's killed what we knew. It, it it's killed what was organic, and now makes it into a contrived, programmed stuff with a bunch of guys who um, who a lot of them can't play a lick of music. They're mm-hmm. just grabbing riffs, guitar riffs, and loops. You know riffs that I might have played, or loops from P Funk and and, and IZ brothers and all these guys and then they're just putting stuff on it and nobody's playing any music you know what I'm saying but yeah so, you think know, a lot
0: of it Dave I think is education too I mean I think if the young people get educated about what real music is and and get a sense of the difference that um, they're not stupid they get it it's just they're not exposed to it I mean like my son is 12 and he's pretty discriminating because he's been exposed to you know what's real and what's yeah, not, yeah. so he knows.
1: That's like my son and my, my kids. You know, they've been exposed to a wide genre of music. Um, and um, you know, for me, that's why like our band, I I love because we're playing everything. And so the moment somebody says, Well, we can sequence this no, no, we're not going there. <laughs> we're gonna play, you know, if if it means you know, a lot of a lot of the stuff, um, I'll end up maybe playing some of the key riffs that might have been on the keyboard. We change it up, and I'm playing it on the guitar. Um, so, you know, we do we do a lot of – we do Marley. We do some of the island stuff. I mean, we do Clapton. You know, we do Doobie Brothers. We do Aretha Franklin. We do James Brown. Like, we're all over the place, and that's what people like about the band, and um, that's what keeps it interesting for me. And, um, you know, people just get blown away because on our island, you know, pretty much hear the same – the same thing everywhere you go. Everybody plays the same song. They might be playing the songs in a different key, but it's basically the same rhythm. It's the same thing, and it's over and over and over again, yeah. which which I can't do. So I'll do a little – we do pieces of it. We mix it up um, because, you know, like I said, we, 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 we go all over play, over the place with the music, and we'd surprise everybody with with the repertoire. Yeah, we even played some Beatles, like we do a killer, um, um, what is it, uh, Come Together, we got a killer version of that. Nice.
0: So, and I see you holding on there to your, your faithful Strat, and I understand that's the one that uh, played on some of these great tunes that we're talking about, right?
1: Yeah, this one was on 99% of everything we played, um, like that album that you mentioned, like all of the, all the guitar parts I played on this. Um, the album, when we did the album that's called Pure and Natural with Capital, an album that that Theo produced, um, I had a, a Gibson at the time, and um, I played, I played a, a good bit of stuff on the Gibson. Uh, there's a song that actually now turns out to be the most popular song for us that we play called Best of My Love um i played that with the with the gibson and um but all of the other albums because i'm really a, a Fender strat guy so no matter how much i go i still end up right back with the strat this is a 1977 strat
0: does it have a name
1: uh no it's just uh it spent a lot of time in bed with me back in the early days because i was you know at least a, at least a minimum of eight hours a day practicing
0: it's like Hendrix sleeping with your guitar.
1: Yeah, and um, so, but this guitar was a replacement for a Strat that I had. That was a '65 Strat. So the the parts that I played on uh, on our On Fire album, I played with that '65 Strat. But uh, what happened is when we did we did a gig with um, a guy by the name of uh, Jimmy Casper. I don't know if you remember a song called in the Space Age. Uh, and we played the apollo theater and um during the time when our roadies were moving our our all of our gear inside some guys bro- broke into the truck and stole my 65 strat um the bass from the bass player also a 12 string of mine and a bunch of the the type of outfits that we used to wear which is kind of like you know back in that time was a lot of sparkle and you looked like space characters and stuff like star wars And so we had some expensive outfits. Uh, They stole those. And um, we ended up, I ended up with, with this baby here.